knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he did, didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp. My co-host, Ashley Glassick, is not with us today. She's finishing up her master's and will return in a couple of weeks. Theology Gals is a podcast on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, and there are a lot of other great podcasts on the network. I wanted to mention a couple of them today. I listened to a few episodes this last week of Shine as Lights, and he did an episode a couple of weeks ago on the importance of reading. That was an especially great episode I wanted to point the listeners to. I will put a link to it in the episode notes. There's also a new podcast I recommend checking out, and they are Living in the Vine. They have really done a lot of great topics, so check them out. You can find all of the podcasts on the network at BibleThumpingWingNet.com including Theology Gals. Before we get to today's topic, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. We're going to be talking about Lordship Salvation and the Lordship Salvation controversy. The controversy was years ago. I remember it from the late 80s, early 90s. For those who are not familiar with it, and and we'll define it in greater detail with our guest, but there was a controversy and kind of between MacArthur on one side and Ryrie and especially Zane Hodges on the other side. Zane Hodges wrote a book called Absolutely Free. MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. But one thing that I've noticed in conversations in recent years is that that people mean different things when they're talking about Lordship Salvation. In some conversations, people have said right to me that Lordship Salvation just means that if you are truly a Christian, that sanctification will follow. But that's not what Lordship Salvation originally was, and that's not what we're talking about. In confessional reform theology, we have a very strong doctrine of sanctification. And 
believe that sanctification absolutely does occur. So that's not what we're taking issue with. The other thing is, when we say that we do not believe in Lordship Salvation, we are not taking the opposing view. We think neither view is consistent with confessional Reformed theology. The Lordship Salvation controversy was originally between dispensationals. So it's not, it was not originally a Reformed debate, it was a dispensational debate. But there are reasons why we do not think either side is consistent with confessional Reformed theology. You know, maybe you are somebody that believes strongly in Lordship Salvation, but listen to what we have to say and check out the resources that I will put in the links. Theocast has done a couple of great episodes on the Lordship Salvation controversy. There's some other links that I'm going to be putting in the notes that I think will be really, really helpful. So our guest today is John Fonville, and in Ashley's absence, Marissa Namir will be guest hosting with me. You may remember Marissa as she guest hosted with me previously. So we're going to go to a commercial, and we will be back with our guest, Pastor John Fonville. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new tract just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's TRACTPlanet.com, coupon code BTWN. Hi, and we are back, and we have a special guest today, Pastor John Fonville. And John, before we get into the topic, for those who aren't familiar with you, could you just share a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, well, look, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. This is really exciting. I, I'll have to say I listen, I do listen to your podcast. And uh, you guys are really serious about this stuff. <laughs> that's, that's really good. I'm, uh, it can be quite intimidating to have people that serious. You got to make sure you know what you're talking about. But um, yeah, it's it's great to be here, and I enjoy your podcast. And you guys have some great guests. Um, well, just I don't know a little bit about me. What what would where would you like to start? What would you like well, to know? <laughs> so you're you're a pastor there of Paramount uh -huh. Church, right? And that's uh -huh. in is that Jacksonville? Yeah, yeah, right. okay, so Jacksonville, yeah, uh, Paramount Church, uh, we planted the church uh, actually on my couch in our house with four people, um, golly, how many years ago was that? That was eight years ago, wow, time goes so fast, um, so we plant, uh, it, the, the church just started as a Bible study, and there was, uh, there were two couples, 
Um, they heard me preach in a church, and they came up to me afterwards, just one of the couples. The other couple was an unchurched couple. Um, and the churched couple came up and said, hey, uh, where did you learn the gospel like that? I'm like, well, <laughs> through a lot of hard knocks and a lot of years of uh, pain. <laughs> um, and they said, well, if that's what you preach, could you teach a Bible study? Because we like to hear this every week. And I'm like, well, I guess come over to the house and we'll, we'll go through it. And uh, they brought this unchurched couple with them. Um, we just sat down on the couch and it was uh, two couples and my wife and my kids. And that's where Paramount Church started right there. Wow, that's neat. And you guys have grown quite a bit in the eight years. Yeah, we have. I mean, it's um, I wouldn't say that uh, church growth experts are going to use us as a study. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it has been, it's been healthy growth. Um, it's, it's been good growth, good, steady, healthy growth. Um, you know, we're going to talk about Lordship Salvation and obviously uh, John MacArthur here in a little bit, but uh, John MacArthur was my mentor. Um, <clears throat> not only that, but, uh, John MacArthur's uh, dad, Jack MacArthur, and his wife, they actually raised my mother-in-law and uh, Jack MacArthur baptized my mother-in-law. Uh, so our families have about, I think it's about 55 years that go back. So there's a lot of, a lot of ties there. But the point I'm making with that is, is when John was my mentor at Grace Church, he used to tell me this. He said, John, when you graduate, he said, you take care of the depth of your ministry and let God take care of the breadth. Um, and, and that was really a good lesson that he did teach me, and it was a, it was a lot of wisdom, and he confessed, you know, he, he told me, he said, I never dreamed that I would have had a platform that I have. He, he said, I, I never sought it, never looked for it, and God just did it. He said, but don't, don't ever worry about those things. He says, you just take care of the depth of your ministry, and God will take care of the breath, and that's what we try to do at Paramount Church is... Um, we try to teach people the centrality of the gospel, a clear law gospel distinction, um, and teach Christ on every page of the Bible. And we've just seen the fruit of it over the past eight years. Uh, many, many people's lives touched by the, the, the life-giving uh, fruit of the gospel uh, in their lives. We're grateful for that. Wow, that that's great. And I think you sharing your background is is helpful as we as we even talk about this and one thing yeah. i'm going to do is in our episode notes i'm going to be putting some different resources and one thing i'm going to put is when you were on Heidel Heidelcast because i oh, i yeah. highly Stop. recommend our <laughs> listeners go and listen to that john gives his testimony in there and talks about the lord's work and and his reforming so I'm going to link that in the episode notes, and, and that's with Dr. R. Scott Clark. Mm -hmm. For those who are not familiar with Lordship Salvation, what uh, is Lordship Salvation? <laughs> that's the big question, right? Um, <clears throat> well, let me just say it like this. Uh, basically, you know, um, the Lordship Salvation controversy was largely a debate um, that goes all the way back, and it erupted back in the uh, 1980s. So that's a... I wasn't even in college yet. <laughs> um, 
So it, it goes way, way back, and it extends back into the you know early 90s, late 90s. Um, it was still raging when I was at the Master Seminary back in 1992. Um, and really what the Lordship Salvation controversy was, it was, it was the concern that justification and sanctification were being separated. Um, because classical Protestant orthodoxy has always affirmed that justification and sanctification are part of what we call, you know, quote, the whole package of salvation. Um, uh, justification, we, we uh, Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, we have been justified, having been justified. So we've been saved from the penalty of sin. And then he talks, he goes on to talk about in, in uh, Romans 6 and other passages, other letters, and he wrote that we have sanctification, that we are currently being saved from the power of sin. And so justification and sanctification are to be distinguished, but they're never to be separated. And so there was a concern back in the 1980s and early 90s that uh, these double benefits of salvation, it's what you mentioned, Scott Clark, he's a good friend of mine, and he's one of my mentors. Um, there was a concern that the double benefits uh, of the covenant of, of salvation were being separated. Uh, so what you had was um, you had uh, what was the non-lordship group, which was really um, it was a group of men from Dallas Seminary. There are some other people involved as well, but we'll just stick with that because those are the principal players when interrupted. And um, you had people like Charles Wyrie, um, and later you had, and very significantly, you had a man named Zane Hodges. Um, and in the late 80s, uh, Hodges, especially in his book, um, God, what was the book called? Um, Absolute, Absolutely Free. Yeah, yeah, absolutely correct. Absolutely free. Um, he argued that you, um, you, you have to accept Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to accept him as your Lord to be saved. So this was, this was the free grace camp. This was the Savior but not Lord camp. Um, but he also went on to say, if you do accept Jesus later on in your life, um, uh, you can do that if you want to become a disciple, a follower of Christ, and live a victorious Christian life. And so when people heard this kind of teaching, um, they immediately rightly recognized that this is antinomianism. This is, this is separating uh, justification and sanctification. So uh, John MacArthur entered into the picture, and he's also another dispensationalist. He's, he's not a Reformed uh, confessional uh, believer. He's a, he's a Baptist dispensationalist, predestinarian, I guess, um, we were uh, calling him a particular Baptist, for lack of a better confessional term. But anyway, John MacArthur, uh, another dispensationalist, he enters into the debate, um, and he saw the problem inherent in this free grace, this Savior but not Lord camp from Dallas uh, Seminary. So in response to it, he wrote a book in 1988, um, it was called The Gospel According to Jesus, and I'm sure uh, you guys have heard of it, and I'm sure your listeners have heard of it. 
But he wrote this book, The Gospel According to Jesus, because he wanted to refute what uh, Rory and Hodges, this free grace crowd, was, was teaching. Um, so MacArthur and his followers, uh, they came to be known as the Lordship Teachers of the Lordship Salvation Camp. Um, and, so, and so MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, I mean, it, it really was the catalyst that uh, blew up this debate. Um, and so a lot of what John wrote in his book is actually very helpful uh, to a point, we'll get into in a moment where it's not helpful, but to a point, it, it, it was a much-needed corrective to this antinomian view of being espoused by men like Zane Hodges. But the problem was that while MacArthur uh, was, um, as Michael Horton puts it, he's also a good friend and a, a mentor of mine, um, Horton says it like this, is that while MacArthur was pulling up the weeds of antinomianism, he also pulled up the flowers of the Reformation. <laughs> and um, th that was not going to be acceptable for the Reformed camp. So really, you know, that's, that's the history of the Lordship Salvation and uh, what it was. Um, I don't know if you want to talk further about that, but there's a lot more history that actually is behind the Lordship Salvation um, and we can trace it back to uh, different struggles like the Marrow controversy in the 18th century. Um, but right. uh, you know, if you, I don't know if I'm going to go back to the 18th century, but there's a, there's a lot you can learn from the 18th century in terms of what happened and the parallels between the, the Marrow controversy um, and then we have the Lordship controversy uh, you know, today. So, so basically, it's not it's not new. <laughs> One thing I wanted, since you since you mentioned Michael Horton, and I'm going to link this in the mm -hmm. in the episode notes, and that is his book Christ the Lord: The Reformation and Lordship Salvation that he edited with several other authors. I that book was extremely helpful for yeah, me. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. That is the best book on this whole topic by far. Yeah. Um, and I have used that book uh, over the years uh, to help rescue, uh, we'll talk about this, I guess, later, but to help rescue believers from the effects of Lordship Salvation and what it does to them. Um, because essentially, what is at stake in the Lordship Salvation debate? One of the big things that's at stake, well, I guess we'll come back to it as well, but is the assurance of the Christian. Uh, it absolutely destroys the believer's assurance. And so I remember, I think it was, oh gosh, maybe six years ago, or um, uh, a young man moved here to uh, Jacksonville, and he came from the Master's College. And he had just been steeped, uh, obviously, at the Master's College uh, in Lordship Salvation teaching. And he had some significant sin struggles in his life that he just could not handle. Um, and I met with him, and he came to me with this grid of Lordship Salvation, and it absolutely was destroying him. Um, and I said, look, I, I understand where you're coming from, because <laughs> I've been there. Um, 
but I think I can offer you a much better alternative, a better way to think about these things. And so, long story short, um, I took him through the book, Christ the Lord. Um, and when he came to the end of the book, uh, he was a new person. Uh, you know, he had a Copernican revolution, just like the rest of us have had. When you awaken to the centrality of the gospel, you awaken to the good news that is uh, really given in the Reformed confessions of the Christian faith. It is very good news. It is free news. Uh, because Lordship Salvation ultimately is a suffocating doctrine that just destroys uh, believers who are weak and sinning and have no capacity to deal with their daily struggles. Has the way people talk about and understand Lordship Salvation changed through the years? Uh, yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know what, let me let me yeah. add something um in conversations online and this is one of the reasons i was thinking about this question conversations online uh, people have pretty much said well lordship salvation just means that sanctification follows i mean so they're almost re redefining it from how you and I maybe first understood it. Cause I, I was in Southern California. I remember the controversy from the eighties. I was still in high school. Um, uh -huh, but uh -huh. I've heard people say that's what it is. And I don't know, have you seen that also? Y yeah. Okay. Well that, yeah, absolutely. I, I run into that almost on a daily basis. <laughs> um, so let me let me hold that thought and I'll come back to it and we can discuss that in detail because uh, Colleen that that question really gets to the heart of this whole issue um, and I'm hoping to make it very clear for your listeners um, because that is not what Lordship Salvation is saying although they are attempting to say it's not what they're saying um, so we'll come back to that, but let me go back first uh, to Marissa's question. Um, uh, how has Lordship maybe changed through the years? Let me just give a couple of uh, introductory thoughts, and then I'm going to give you an example. Um, maybe not so much how it has changed, but how it's morphed into a contemporary evangelicalism. Um, but, you know, when we talk about uh, Lordship salvation, uh, a good deal of evangelicals back in the day and still today because, um, you know, I graduated from the Master Seminary, so when people see that on our church website, they come to visit our church and they're thinking, you know, this is a MacArthur Lordship guy. Um, uh, I had some Lordship people about six months ago come to our church, and after I had done the Lord's Supper, uh, they came up to me at the end of the service, and they confronted me right there uh, at, at the front of the church. And they were trying to correct my theology right there on the spot, and they got, they got very, very aggressive. Um, so it's still out there. <laughs> um, but, but many evangelicals sided with MacArthur and the Lordship teachers because um, and I think Michael Horton has correctly pointed this out. They were reacting against a Wesleyan two-step kind of view of salvation, this higher life Keswick view of salvation. Um, so you can be justified initially, but at some later point in your life, you have this 
uh, existential experience with the Holy Spirit and you truly become sanctified. And at that point, you become this victorious Christian and you experience the abundant Christian life or whatever. And so what many wanted to say to that kind of stuff was, wait a minute, you know, when, when we come to saving faith in Christ, we receive a whole Christ. Walter Marshall um, in his book, your listeners would want to read this book. Uh, Walter Marshall, the great 18th century Scottish preacher, he wrote a book um, called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. Um, uh, and be, oh, and by the way, be sure to read the, the uh, updated English version by Bruce McRae. Don't attempt to read the old English version. I did the old English version first, <laughs> and I don't uh, really recommend that approach. Um, but as he says in that book, he says, in salvation, you know, we receive a whole Christ. We receive all of his saving benefits. We receive uh, justification, sanctification, we receive glorification, we receive the whole package of salvation. He, he makes the point in his book, he says, we do not receive a half Christ. We do not in salvation receive a Savior, and then at some later stage re receive the other half Lord, and then we become a disciple and follower of Christ. And so it was understandable that some folks were concerned that uh, they were hearing these free grace teachers. They called it free grace, and the ironic thing was it, it became very legalistic. But anyway, uh, they were hearing these free grace teachers say that you're tearing Christ apart. Uh, you're getting some of his benefits, justification. And then at some later point, by your own free will decision, so it was a very Arminian type of view, uh, you get sanctification, you get some more benefits, and you got it because you surrendered all or you laid it all on the altar or you, you came to a crisis moment and you, you got this work of the Spirit and you became this super victorious Christian. And so you had this two-stage Wesleyan view of salvation, and it continues today uh, in the church, maybe not explicitly but implicitly, and it kind of goes like this, and I don't, did you guys grow up Baptist, uh, Presbyterian? I, I grew up in the Evangelical Free Church, but then I uh, attended a Wesleyan Holiness Bible College. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, exactly what you're talking about. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, all right. So fundamentalist for me. Okay. Well, this will fit, the, uh, hopefully this description will fit both of your experiences, because it was mine growing up in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, this this subtle antinomian view that that I grew up with in my evangelical Southern Baptist uh, service, what a church was, um, you're in a church service, and they said, look, you you make this decision and you come forward at this crisis moment to the altar. It's an interesting uh, term, um, and you can get into heaven um, if you just pray this prayer. And you sign this line because you've asked Jesus into your heart. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah. And so Graham Goldsworthy has a wonderful, in his book, Gospel Center Hermeneutics, he just obliterates this ask Jesus into your heart kind of man-made doctrine. But anyway, um, uh, that kind of theology uh, has come out of what we call revivalism or the second great awakening. We have ultra calls and the Charles Finney uh, new method, new measures for uh, 
bringing about the rebirth, which is not a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's steeped in that. Um, and it's also steeped in this Wesleyan two view of sanctification, uh, salvation. And so they would tell people, if you pray and you really are sincere, I remember I uh, used to uh, attend uh, Harvest Crusades with Greg Laurie. And he would always preach the, quote, gospel, and at the end of it, he would lead the whole crowd in this prayer, and he would always tell them, he said, now, if you really sincerely pray this prayer tonight, you are saved. Um, and so lordship teachers uh, reacted against this kind of error, and they were right to do that. But while their diagnosis is correct, their remedy is seriously flawed. So um, you know, your question, with, with that history in mind, that context in mind, how has lordship changed? Let me give you a contemporary example of what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, most of your listeners have probably heard of a guy named David Platt. Um, and he's written, obviously, a, a best-selling book, Radical. Um, David, in this book, he does call attention to, to valid areas of concern. You know, he talks about the unreached people groups, and he, um, he talks about how the church should be mobilized to reach these people groups, and we would say a hearty amen to that. And um, he talks about how the Christian faith involves uh, sharing possessions and concern and care for the weak and the poor, and so we, 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 we don't have a problem with that. Um, but then he explains that we have to become aware of um, how this secularized worldview that we live in in the church has influenced our understanding of the gospel and its implications for how we live the Christian life. And so as I'm reading the book, and the reason I read the book, I'd never heard of David Platt, and I had some college students at Paramount uh, come to me um, after church on Sunday, and they said, hey, you know, Pastor John, we got this new book, Radical, by a guy named David Platt, and we're so excited, we want you to read it. And I was like, okay, well, I've never heard of him, and uh, all right, I'll read it. And I brought it home, I began to read it, and I was just aghast by what I was reading. I shared it with my wife, Catherine, and she just couldn't believe her ears either. So while... While Platt has valid areas of concern about the health, wealth, gospel, and materialism, and the things I mentioned prior, um, really his, his diagnosis might be correct, but his remedy is incredibly flawed. Um, and what he says about the purpose of his book, let me just uh, quote uh, a section from his book, because this is very, I think, very important to understand. He says that uh, the purpose of his book is to, quote, explore the biblical gospel alongside our cultural assumptions with an aim toward embracing Jesus for who he really is, not for who we've created him to be. And then he says, quote, we want to look at the core truth of a God-centered gospel. Um, and then he says, and see how we've manipulated it into a human-centered message. And then he finishes by saying, by this biblical gospel, we will determine not to waste our lives on anything but uncompromising, unconditional abandonment to a gracious, loving Savior who invites us to take radical risk and promises us radical reward. 
The problem with David Platt, who has been largely influenced by the Lordship Salvation doctrine, and the fundamental problem with radical is that it is a radical confusion of law and gospel throughout his entire book. Um, he does the exact same thing that John MacArthur does in the gospel according to Jesus, which we'll come back to in a minute. But in Platt's book, the law and the gospel are so interconnected, so confused, so blurred, that ultimately the law just absorbs the entire gospel. So here's the ironic thing. He likes to criticize uh, Joel Osteen. And I mean, you know, Joel Osteen's an easy target. <laughs> um, but the, the ironic thing is, is that um, he ends up confusing the law and gospel as much as Joel Osteen does. But Joel Osteen is guilty of um, this gentle moralism, your best life now if you just follow X, Y, and Z. But what, what issues from radical is, is not a gentle moralism. What comes from radical is a taxing legalism. So let me give you some examples from Platt's book and how Lordship Salvation has really infected the whole book and, and really destroyed the gospel. The first thing that Platt does in his book is he issues a call to live the gospel, and he does this throughout the whole book. Um, I don't know if that conviction, um, if, if that arises from a conviction that he has or a misrepresentation, but the, the bottom line is this. Uh, nowhere does Scripture issue a command for believers to live the gospel. That is the unique work of Christ alone. I've never met a person who has incarnated themselves. And I've never met a person who has perfectly, through their active obedience, given perfect perpetual personal obedience to God's law ever. I've never met anybody who had the authority to lay their life down on a cross and pick it back up again the third day and propitiate the judgment and wrath of God for sin. So it's, it's a confusion of categories, and it's silly to call people to live the gospel. The, the, the Bible calls us to believe the gospel and to obey the law. And so this isn't theological hair-splitting. Um, I, I had one lady who was at the time in our church when um, I, I, I did a two-part series for the church uh, reacting against this book, Radical, and trying to protect uh, Paramount Believers uh, members. She was so furious with me after church. She was as red in the face as an apple, <laughs> and her lips were quivering, and she could barely speak to me. And she's like, how dare you? How dare you go after this great man of God? Um, and she says, you're just engaging in theological hair splitting. So it was an interesting uh, Sunday. <laughs> um, but, but this is not theological hair-splitting. This is a uh, fundamental and, and vital distinction um, that we have to make in the Christian life. The law and the gospel are to be as carefully distinguished as Christ's work on the cross is from loving your neighbor. The great commandment is not the, the, is not the great announcement. It is not the gospel. 
And so when it comes to this distinction between the law and gospel, we can never be too precise. I'm going to just give you a great quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, Calvin's successor in Geneva, Theodore Beza. Um, and I just happened to have the privilege this past summer to actually uh, visit Geneva and uh, go to uh, Calvin's church and go to the Reformation Wall and, and see where these great men were. But Beza, he says this, he wrote a letter to his father, and it's been published into a book called The Christian Faith. And I believe it was just republished. I don't know who republished it. It was hard to get for a while, but now I think you can get it again. I would encourage all your listeners to get uh, Theodore Beza's little book, The Christian Faith. It was actually a letter that he wrote to his unbelieving father, who was Roman Catholic. And he was trying to explain to his father the Christian faith from the Reformed perspective in the Reformation, well, later Reformation at that point. And this is what he said. He said, we must pay great attention to these things. He's talking about the distinction between law and gospel. We must pay great attention to these things, for with good reason we can say that ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. He's exactly right. And that's what we see this, this book by David Platt and his preaching and uh, his books. That's what we see happening. He's corrupting the gospel. Um, it's not a personal vendetta against David Platt. I don't even know David Platt. I just read his public writings and see that this is a serious distortion. Uh, but the second problem with um, his whole radical uh, message in his book, see, he continually confuses words and concepts um, in, in the second chapter of his book about the foundations of the gospel. He says in chapter 2, oh, I'm going to take you back to the foundations of the gospel. And I'm thinking when I first read it, well, great, let's go there because I need some good news. <laughs> um, but he misunderstands the uses of the law, and he mistakenly attributes the spiritual effect of the law to the gospel. Let me give you some examples. Um, on page 28 of Radical, he says, quote, the gospel reveals eternal realities about God that we would sometimes rather not face, end quote. Now, when I first read that statement by Platt, I sat down and I just shook my head and I thought to myself, what eternal realities about God would I rather not face that's revealed to me in the gospel? Let me think, is unconditional uh, grace towards me in Christ? his love for me through propitiating my sin, um, freely being justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, mercy, uh, would I rather not face mercy? Um, and not be, I just got very alarmed about that statement. And then um, uh, he says also these realities that the gospel reveals to us includes God as a wrathful judge who might damn us. And then he says, quote, the gospel confronts us with the hopelessness of our sinful condition. That's on page 31 of the book. So, 
so as I began comparing and contrasting what he's writing with what the Reformation in the Reformed Confession said, uh, Reformation theology in the Reformed Confession say that it is God's law that brings us up short. Um, and But he attributes that task to the gospel on too many occasions to even count in his book. Um, let, let me give you another example, just so that your, your, your listeners can understand this is coming. This is from page 32 of his book. He says, quote, the biblical gospel says you are an enemy of God, dead in your sins and in your present state of rebellion. You are not even able to see that you need life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. And then he says, this is helping us recognize, quote, the beauty of the gospel. Now, that's tragic. That is very tragic. Because unfortunately for readers, none of those propositions reveal the beauty of the gospel. What those propositions reveal is the absolute terror of God's law to a sinner. It refuses the truth and reality of where we stand apart from Christ. Romans 3.20, God's law is what discloses to us our sin and misery. This is what it teaches in the Heidelberg Catechism. And when I teach my kids uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and I ask them, uh, from where do you know your sin and misery? They all answer, Daddy, the law of God. None of them say, oh, Daddy, the gospel reveals to us our sinfulness and our, our, our misery and the hopelessness of our condition, that's, that's ridiculous. The gospel is extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary good news, and it does not impose any commands. It doesn't make known any realities about God that a sinner would rather not face, and this is quite the opposite. The, the gospel reveals to us realities the sinner wants to face. The the gospel does not portray God as some wrathful judge who damns sinners. It displays to us a merciful Father in the incarnate Son by the working of the Holy Spirit, um, a, a loving, merciful Father who, for Christ's sake alone, forgives our sin and iniquity. It holds out great hope. It does not convict us as enemies of God. It acquits us as children and friends of God. It announces that God reconciles his enemies by the death of his son. And so Platt's book is just abounding in a confusion about what the gospel is itself. And then the third problem with Platt's book is that... um, he doesn't understand how uh, he doesn't understand discipleship. His confusion of law and gospel is evident in his exposition of the story of the rich young man, which is a foundational uh, doctrine uh, for lordship salvation and lordship teachers. Uh, Mark chapter ten, he he talks about the story that you know you have the rich young man who comes to Jesus and Jesus says well if you sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me uh, then you know you you'll be you'll be quote saved and so Platt says that this story um, is an example that Jesus sometimes calls people to sell everything they have and give it to the poor now listen to his connection to lordship salvation 
he says that the story is about that because Jesus is Lord. And quote, this text calls us to consider if we are at least willing to ask God if he wants us to sell everything that we have. And then he says, this kind of abandonment Jesus asked of the rich young man as at the core of Jesus's invitation throughout the Gospels. Again, that is not the gospel. Um, he doesn't understand discipleship. He doesn't understand what Jesus is doing with this rich young man. A far better interpretation of Mark chapter 10 and this rich young ruler, the rich young man story, is not an invitation of the gospel. It is a setting forth of God's law to expose this man's pretensions of law-keeping. And what Jesus was doing was trying to demonstrate to this uh, self-righteous lawkeeper, though he thought he was a lawkeeper, his lack of genuine obedience and righteousness. He was seeking to expose his self-righteousness and his lack of genuine obedience. Jesus wasn't asking this young man if he was, quote, willing and so what I tell people about that is, uh, you know, and believers, that, members of Paramount, I said, look, the demand of God's law is not do this and be radical. The demand of God's law is do this and live or else be damned. It's do this and live. And so Platt says, after he sets forth the foundations of the gospel and, uh, and the story, he then asked his readers of his book, I want you to consider the proper response to Jesus because Jesus is going to be Lord. He's Lord, and you've got to submit to his lordship. Well, what would be the proper response to Jesus? One would think, sola fide, faith alone. Regrettably, Platt maintains that the only proper reaction, this is on page 39, is, quote, immediate and total surrender. Now, that's not the Reformed answer. That's the two-stage Wesleyan answer, surrender all. Um, and then he writes on page 37, he says, Surely this gospel evokes unconditional surrender of all that we are and all that we have to all that he is, end quote. And then to put his leader, uh, his readers under a tremendous fear and guilt to scare them into following Jesus, because that's really about the only way you can put it. He refers to Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. You know, where Jesus says the, the famous Lord, Lord passage, did we not? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. That, that, uh, the, the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. He says that's the kind of total surrender that the gospel demands, as if the gospel demands. And then he says, but if such radical surrender is missing, now this is where lordship salvation goes off the tracks for believers. He says if that kind of radical surrender is missing in your life, then he chillingly exhorts, quote, page 37, you and I desperately need to consider whether we have ever truly, authentically trusted in Christ for our salvation. And right there is where assurance is lost. And if assurance is lost, obedience is lost. Because 
as Walter Marshall says in his book, what is it that motivates us to obedience? It's assurance. And if you don't have assurance, there's no pursuit of holiness. So really what happens with this lordship salvation, these lordship teachers that have morphed over the years is we've gone from John MacArthur, the gospel according to Jesus, to which has now become morphed into Platt's whole radical idea. But this advice that uh, David Platt shares in his book, it is, it is unhelpful uh, for its blurring of the law and gospel. Uh, nowhere in Scripture uh, is the demand of God's law an invitation of the gospel. The only proper and initial response to the gospel is, is um, a truly, quote, radical proposal, given our tendency to want to save ourselves, is to receive and rest. Those are the words that come from the Westminster Confession on what saving faith is. It is to receive and rest in the finished work of Christ alone. So this is a helpful, as a hopeful invitation from God in setting this free offer apart from the many commands that we find in Scripture does not mean that justification can exist without sanctification. Because I said that was the heart of what spurred this whole controversy was they were concerned that justification was being separated from sanctification. But what this hopeful invitation of the gospel means is that the call to discipleship is an expression of gratitude. It is an encouragement to Christian living that is worthy of such a salvation given. So repentance must be preached along with call to faith, but repentance and faith have to be distinguished in order to preserve both sola fide and sola gratia. Grace alone, faith alone. So the problem that I have with these lordship teachers and David Platt and his message and his preaching and his books and all is, is that whenever the law is confused with the gospel, the remedy is always wrong. The remedy is called you have to have unconditional surrender. You have to be, a quote, at least willing to sell everything. And so the problem is so serious that, you know, Platt's book, just like the gospel according to Jesus, really has to be assessed uh, as pastorally crippling to readers who most likely uh, already have a weak soul and afflicted conscience. Um, I don't know if you want to talk more about that. I know that was kind of yeah, long-winded, but... <laughs> right. I know, actually, I do, towards the end, I actually would like to play a voicemail we got, because it was a question I think that's going to fit into this, having to do with assurance, okay. and have you respond to it. But yeah. before I get, before I ask the next question, I wanted mm -hmm. to, and this fits into right what you're talking about, I wanted to read a quote from Christ the Lord, mm -hmm. and because I think it would be helpful with this next question. This comes okay. from Rick Ritchie, who's who's a friend of mine. And I love this. I love his chapter in the book because he talks a lot about the dispensational aspect of the controversy. But he yeah. says, what often remains unnoticed in the current debate is that while the two sides differ in their answer to this one question, they both come to the question with a common theological background, dispensationalism, which determines in advance the possible range of answers. We might call the proponents of the two positions dispensational lordship salvationists and dispensational decisional 
salvationists. Before we offer our support on one side of the debate, we might or we ought to take notice of the fact that both parties occupy the same theological content and have pledged allegiance to the same doctrinal constitution. The better question for us might be, which side shall we support? Not shouldn't be, which side shall we support? But how can we avoid the minefields of both positions and find our way back to our true country? And I think I think that's important because what I want you to talk about is why this isn't consistent with reformed theology. Why neither Zane Hodge's view or MacArthur's view fits into our confessional reformed theology. And you kind of talked about that a little bit already. Yeah, well that yeah, I mean that's a very good question and that really gets to the 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 uh the heart of the, the issue. Um and, and I do think uh, uh for evangelicals, because I you know I pick on evangelicalism because I came out of it, I was a product of it, and I when I discover the reformed confessions of the Christian faith, I <laughs> I begin to realize like wow, there's a lot of glaring problems that I have. Um but I think evangelicals are often surprised, and I see this all the time on social media. Uh, they're surprised to learn in very significant ways that the Reformed Confession, the Reformed Confession of the Christian Faith and Reformation Theology, differs quite widely with both sides of the Lordship controversy, as uh, your friend uh, Rick, uh, Richie, you just read from. He's exactly right. Um, the the, um, the reformed confessions of the Christian faith really clear uh, really steer a clear careful path between the two errors of the uh, non lordship group and the lordship group um, the uh, the non lordship group we would uh, classify as you know antinomianism against the law license um, and the lordship group. Uh, we would classify as nomism, uh, legalism, moralism. Um, and the Reformation view, the Reformed uh, Confessions of the Christian Faith, steer a clear path between those two errors. Uh, so really, um, both sides of this debate, Savior but not Lord and Lordship teachers, they were both wrong. And it's because... Um, they're working from a non-reformed confessional view of salvation in its application. Uh, what I have come to learn, and I did not understand when I was at the Master Seminary, because obviously they didn't have a confessional view, is that the categories that both Hodges and MacArthur use are very different from how the reformed confessions talk about salvation and its application. So let me give you some examples, and let's we'll just we'll go through the differences here, some of the major differences. The Reformed confessions talk about uh, being united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and as I mentioned earlier, receiving a whole Christ. We receive Christ as Savior and Lord. We receive Christ for all of His saving benefits. We receive the substance of the covenant of grace, which is both justification and sanctification. So we, we would say in the Reformed Confession of the Christian faith, uh, the, the first benefit of the covenant of grace is the free forgiveness of sins in Christ. Uh, unconditional acceptance with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. 
And then we would also say that the second benefit of the covenant of grace is progressive sanctification. But we're also careful to define that in terms that this progressive sanctification, which is salvation, it is a spirit-wrought grace that follows logically and necessarily from the first benefit, which is justification. So um, let me give you an example um, of how the Reformed Confessions uh, do this. Uh, question 75 in the Westminster Larger Catechism. It asks the question, what is sanctification? And here's the answer that it gives. It says, sanctification is a work and this is so important. It is a work of God's grace. So right there, you know that sanctification is not some synergistic effort between you and God to save yourself. But then it goes on, it says, sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they, that is the elect, God's chosen people, whom God hath before the foundation of the world, chosen to be holy, are in time, now listen, through the powerful operation of his spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them. So it is a work of God's grace through the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit who applies the death and resurrection of Christ to us. It's not our work. And by that work of grace of the Holy Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto us, then we are renewed and their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts. And those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened as that they more and more die into sin and rise unto newness of life. Now, that's a long definition, but that is a significant difference between what the Lordship teachers are teaching on both sides and what we're teaching. Um, uh, if you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, qu uh, questions at 88 through 90, it's very clear that sanctification um, uh, in believers is by grace, and that it is the gradual putting to death of the old man in Adam, and we're made alive in the new man in Christ. And so um, we're not going to say that when you um, come to saving faith through sola fide, faith alone, that you're going to receive a half Christ. We do not tear Christ into pieces. But the problem with lordship advocates like David Platt, John MacArthur, John Piper, and these other lordship teachers is that they sound like they're saying you've got to make Jesus Lord by doing something, i.e. repenting, obeying, or as Piper has been saying recently in different articles that he's writing, uh, you have to meet certain conditions to, to enter into heaven. Now, I'm, I do want to be fair about this because, you know, uh, John MacArthur does point out in his book, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus, that we don't make Jesus anything. He is Lord, and that salvation 
it is not dependent on repentance and it is not of human works and and we we are grateful that he affirms that um i'm also grateful that in the book he affirms that christians sin uh, he denies perfectionism um, and he says that it is incomplete in this life and that um, uh, repentance is not a condition for receiving salvation. And to all of that, we give an enthusiastic amen. But the problem with Lordship Salvation and how it differs from the Reformed Confessions is that MacArthur's response to Zane Hodges back in the day um, is that MacArthur and guys like David Platt in our current day, they blur the lines between justification and sanctification in contrast to Hodges and the free grace movement, which is still around today. I'm on their uh, uh, email list, so I get their newsletter. <laughs> um, uh, MacArthur and the Lordship people, they blur the lines between justification and sanctification, but the free grace non-Lordship crowd separate justification and sanctification. Um, <clears throat> so those are some big differences uh, between the Reformed confessions, which do not separate justification and sanctification, but the Reformed confessions also do not blur them. They don't confuse and conflate them. Um, I can give you some examples um, to maybe make it clearer about how MacArthur does this because it can get a little bit subtle and people can miss it. But when you start to see it, um, then you begin to understand what, what, you know, what the problem really is. I think this fits kind of fits into our, our next question because mm -hmm. in Christ the Lord, one thing they show is how MacArthur confuses law and gospel. And you talked about this with David Platt, where mm -hmm. with MacArthur sometimes calls, calls something gospel which is law so maybe you can talk about this in terms of how lordship salvation is at odds with the reformed understanding of law and gospel yeah well, um, <laughs> that's a huge you know that's a huge question um but yeah in but, but fundamentally that that's the problem as i said um you know, this whole Lordship salvation um, uh, controversy, it had, it, it took, it was fundamentally just an argument between dispensationalists. Th there is no, quote, Lordship controversy in the Reformed world. Now, there are, there are similarities, there are other controversies, um, but the Lordship controversy was largely a debate uh, between dispensationalists uh, and, the, and, and the camp. And so they didn't, they operate with different categories. So they don't have this category of what you just talked about as law and gospel. They don't, they don't operate in those categories. When I was at, um, you know, the master seminary, I, the, the, the hermeneutic um, of law and gospel it, it didn't even come up. It wasn't even spoken. It wasn't even implicit on the radar. I mean, it just wasn't even there. I didn't know about it until years after I graduated and studied on my own and um, uh, discovered it by the grace of God. But so, so the reason, a big reason that uh, Lordship teachers 
for the most part, not always, but for the most part, don't have this category of law and gospel is because they're dispensationalists. Um, and dispensationalism doesn't have, doesn't operate on this hermeneutic. But the law gospel hermeneutic in the Reformed uh, Confession of the Christian Faith, it's really this, and I always try to clarify this for the, my people at, at Paramount. When you come to Paramount Church and you hear us use these terms, law and gospel, law and gospel, what the Reformed Confession of the Christian Faith is trying to make a clear distinction between is between two types of covenants. If the law would be the covenant of works, which is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Gospel would be the covenant of grace, which begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and then finds its way from promise there to fulfillment and then consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. So when we're talking about law and gospel, the distinction uh, that we're making, uh, when I say we, the Reformed Confession of the Christian faith, that distinction is trying to maintain a clear distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Um, and that is, uh, when you turn the gospel um, the covenant of grace into the covenant of works and make personal spirit-wrought sanctity a condition for salvation. You have just injected the covenant of works back into the covenant of grace, and you have destroyed the gospel. That's why it's so important to make these clear distinctions in the Bible and to have these categories. Uh, and unfortunately, the dispensationalists, they do not have these categories. Uh, and unfortunately, in the Reformed world, um, many Reformed people, you know, they're, they're, they're hedging against the covenant of works. And you had people like Norm Shepard, who taught uh, mono-covenantalism, the collapsing of, of the covenant of works into the covenant of grace. And so, you, as Michael Horton says, when you do that, you don't have law or gospel, you have gospel. And basically, you have covenantal gnomism. N.T. Wright, John Piper. And, and I know that's not fair to say John Piper is not a covenantal gnomist, you know, just like N.T. Wright. But when John Piper makes comments that um, salvation, justification is by faith alone, but heaven is not by faith alone, it's like, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that is basically what Paul preaches against in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Having, are you so foolish, Galatians? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, Norm Shepard's monocovenantal error. You're in by grace. And you're kept and you're completed by your spirit-brought sanctity and obedience, by your faithfulness. That's a serious, serious problem when you collapse these covenants together. And unfortunately, that's what the Lordship teachers often do. Let Can I give you a couple of examples of how this works out? Because I, I want to yeah. put... Okay, I want to... That would be helpful. Okay, um... 
uh, here's how this works out with John MacArthur in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And I've already mentioned lots of examples, obviously, from David Platt. But, okay, so MacArthur and Christ the Lord put uh, really pinpoints all this. So you can read this in Christ the Lord. But MacArthur says, for example, real faith results in obedience. Well, okay, absolutely. Nobody disagrees with that. But then he goes further and he says, disobedience is unbelief. And we're like, mm, uh-oh. <laughs> um, then he says, true faith is humble, submissive obedience. Or he makes this comment. He says, we have already seen that repentance is a critical element of genuine faith. Or he says, faith encompasses obedience. Faith is not complete unless it is obedient. Now, those statements seriously blur the lines between justification and sanctification because they conflate faith with obedience and repentance. But that is not how the Reformed Confessions, the Reformation theology, speaks about faith, obedience, and repentance. Let me just give this in a nutshell, and that we can give some examples uh, from the Reformed Confessions and how they handle this. Um, the Reformed Confessions speak about obedience and repentance as the fruit of genuine saving faith. It is the evidence. So repentance and obedience are evidential in salvation. They're not instrumental. The only thing that is instrumental in salvation is faith. And the only cause of salvation is grace. So we say, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace, that's the cause, it is by grace that you're saved, you've been saved through faith, the instrument of faith. And so faith is the instrumental cause, but grace is the foundational cause. And then good works are the evidential uh, uh, role. They are the evidence. They are the fruit of faith. So let me give you some examples on how the, on how the Heidelberg Catechism uh, uh, deals with this. In question 62... The Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? And the answer is, is because the righteousness which can stand before the judgment seat of God must be perfect throughout and wholly conformable to the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect, and defiled with sin. And so it follows up with question 63. How is it then that our good works merit nothing? While yet it is God's will to reward them in this life and that and in that which is to come. In other words, there's no motivation to do good works if you're not going to get a reward. But the Bible says God's going to reward them. So how can we not merit? Because a reward, you've got to do something. And the answer is this reward comes not of merit but of grace. That's what Augustine said as Calvin quotes him, God crowns his own gifts within us. So 
the logical conclusion then is, well, if God rewards us by grace and we don't have to work to earn those rewards, then we can just sit back and do nothing and we can be careless and we can be licentious, we can be antinomian. So the question 64, but does not this doctrine make men careless and wicked? And the answer is no. Why not? For it is impossible that those who are grafted into Christ, union with Christ by true faith, should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. And then if you read on further in question 86, it says, since then, we are, since then we are redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we do good works? And here's the answer. It's very simple. The believer does good works because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, renews us also by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that with our whole life, we may show ourselves thankful to God for his blessings, this gratitude, and that he may be glorified through us. We glorify God with our good works. Then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. That's the reflex act of faith. And I'd like to come back to that in a moment to talk about the reflex act of faith. But, and then it says, and by our godly walk, uh, may win others also to Christ is an evangelistic aspect to our, our good works. So these are reasons we do good works. Um, but then the, the, one of the reasons I love the Reformed Confession of the Christian faith is because it, it, it paints a very realistic picture of the Christian life. On the one hand, it doesn't, picture, it doesn't paint quietism. On the other hand, it doesn't paint uh, legalism and uh, licentiousness and antinomianism, and then, but but what it does, it it, it doesn't it doesn't uh, paint perfectionism and the victorious Christian life. It question one fourteen in the Heidelberg Catechism: Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And here's the answer: No. But even the holiest men in this life have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, we're not picking and choosing which laws we like and dislike, we're not antinomian, they begin to live, not only according to some, but according to all the commandments of God. And so the problem with the believer is not that he doesn't love God's law, he just still at this point is not able to give the full obedience that he would like to give. And so, question 115 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it follows up. Why then does God have the law preached so strictly? If no one in this life, no believer in this life can keep God's law perfectly. And it gives a wonderful answer. It says, first, that throughout our life, we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and therefore seek more earnestly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. I love how the Belgic Confession puts it. He says, the Christian is one who is constantly appealing to Christ alone throughout their whole life. It's exactly right. Um, and then the second, why is God's law preached so strictly if we can't keep it? Not only did our sinful nature and more earnestly seek Christ and his forgiveness and his righteousness, 
but so that we can be zealous for good works. But as we're zealous for good works, we are constantly praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying us. Let me say it like this. It is the Holy Spirit who is saving us from the power of our sin and who more and more is renewing us after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. So clearly, again, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Reformed Confessions, they set forth the logical uh, necessity of good works, of obedience and repentance, but they frame it as the fruit and the evidence and the consequence of genuine saving faith. Um, but the problem with uh, lordship teachers um, is that while they want to guard um, against antinomianism, the problem is, is they blur this line and they sound like they're making good works instrumental in salvation. And that's what the current controversy has been with John Piper when he writes articles that uh, sola fide is not what you really think it is. There are other conditions that you have to meet. And to that we say, no, there are, there are no conditions that we have to meet because in the covenant of grace, we have a substitute, we have a mediator who has graciously on our behalf met all of the conditions, both in his act of obedience, Galatians 4, Romans 5, and in his passive obedience, he has fully become a curse for us, and, and he has exhausted that curse. And so he has met all the conditions for us so that what was conditioned for him is now gifted to us as a free inheritance or a gift. There's nothing left to meet because it has all been met in our mediator and our substitute, both in his life and in his death. And so salvation is from justification, sanctification, glorification. The whole package is sola gratia, sola fide, uh, solus Christus, sola Deo Gloria. I mean, it is it is that simple. And but Lordship salvation blurs that distinction, and it confuses faith and repentance and obedience. I think we already touched on this question, but maybe just to get a little more specific, um, why is it important for us to have a clear understanding of justification and sanctification? Oh yeah, that's a that's a great great question. Um, well, uh, simply put, it's important because it's the difference between salvation and judgment. <laughs> it's it's the difference between justification and condemnation forever and ever and ever. Um, we have to rightly understand the difference between justification and sanctification because we don't want to be Romanists. There was a reason for the Reformation of which we're going to celebrate here on October 31st, the 500th year anniversary. Um, classical Protestantism, um, especially as articulated in the Reformed Confessions of the Christian faith, where we're coming from, they've always affirmed that justification and sanctification are part of the same package of salvation. 
Um, they've always affirmed the three tenses of salvation. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified, we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We have been justified, saved from the penalty of sin. And, and then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. He talks about a present tense of salvation. He says, we are being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from the power of sin. That is sanctification. And then he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, he's got this future tense. He says, we, sh excuse me, he says, we shall be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from the presence of sin. And so, you know, back to this question, why is it important to have a clear understanding of justification and sanctification? We need to be able to tell people, this is what saves you, and this is not what saves you. Um, and the, the damaging result of confusing justification and, and sanctification is that it results in a theology of works righteousness. Earning your salvation by good works, earning your salvation through your faithfulness, earning your salvation by meeting certain conditions, either for final justification, empty right, or for entering heaven, which is the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection, John Piper. But the scriptures are abundantly clear, and so and the Reformed confessions very clearly summarize the teaching of Scripture on this, Galatians 2.16. We're not justified through works of the law. We're not sanctified through works of the law, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. And surely nobody's going to argue from Romans 8 that we're finally glorified by anything that we've ever done. I, I think it's just absolutely amazing to me that an evangelical Bible teacher who is purportedly celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and is teaching sola fide is going to lead believers to say they have to meet certain conditions to enter the new heavens and the new earth one day. And that believers are going to stand before a holy God with their impartial, imperfect works, spirit-wrought works in salvation, and say, here, God, let me in. I, that's ju it's just baffling. That's not what we believe, teach, and confess uh, in Reformation theology. Um, and tragically, um, this, this, uh, this egregious error of putting sanctification before justification, that is the road back to Rome, and you can say goodbye to the Reformation. Because the Church of Rome teaches that God only justifies those who are truly sanctified. And so what Rome does is they accuse Protestants, particularly the Reformed believers and I guess uh, certain confessional Lutherans who are faithful, uh, they accuse uh, faithful Protestants of teaching illegal fiction. Oh, God justifies the ungodly, but they're ungodly, so God can't justify them because they're not righteous. So you have a legal fiction. To which we say to Rome, your accusation would be exactly right, 
were it not for the imputation of a genuine righteousness that came from a true man who absolutely earned and kept every bit of God's law for us, namely Christ and his perfect imputed righteousness to us by grace alone, through faith alone. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. Um, and it leaves us scratching our head going, where are you getting this? <laughs> this is not sola fide for the Reformation. Um, the, the Reformed Confessions, as I said, I want to make this as clear as I can, uh, they maintain that good works, even spirit-wrought good works and sanctification, are never instrumental in the whole package of salvation, in justification, in sanctification, in glorification. They're never instrumental. They are only evidential. That's why I quoted... Uh, question 62 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Why can't our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? And the reason, again, we have to remind ourselves, the works, the righteousness that can stand before the judgment seat of God must be perfect. That is exactly what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 in the Sermon on the Mount when he's preaching the law. He says, you must be perfect, even as my heavenly Father is perfect. There's no willing to sell all. There's no surrender. There's no decision. It's, there's no sincerity of effort. It's perfection to the whole law of God. And it says, but the problem is, even our best works, our spirit-wrought effort in sanctification, which is a work of the grace of the Holy Spirit, even that in this life is imperfect and defiled with sin. So this brings up a very crucial point that the Reformers, particularly John Calvin, recovered in the Reformation. And when I first read this, as I was reading through Calvin's Institutes, which I would highly, I'm going to do a book recommendation, I would highly recommend that all your listeners read uh, all 1,600 pages of Calvin's Institutes. Devote 10 pages a day, you'll be done in six months. It's not that hard. But when I was reading through Calvin's Institutes for the first time, I came across a vital truth that the Reformers brought back in the Reformation and was absolutely one of the most freeing, joy-giving truths I've ever discovered. Calvin, in his discussion of justification, he, he's talking about not only does God justify our persons before him in the judgment, but he also, God also justifies our good works before him. And so in book three, um, Calvin, he's answering this question. He's, he's answering the question, how can our good works, which are even spirit wrought in this life, which are partial, imperfect, and tainted with sin, how can even that be accepted by God 
as if those good works are whole and perfect. Well, I want you to listen to this answer that he gives because it is absolutely life-changing. It's deeply encouraging. And it gives believers assurance, which is what Lordship Salvation doesn't do. Listen to the answer. How can our good works, which are partial, imperfect, tainted with sin, be accepted by God as if they were whole and perfect? And Calvin's answer is, quote, if we recall the foundation that supports it, every difficulty will be solved. A work begins to be acceptable only when it is undertaken with pardon, that is, forgiveness. Now, whence does this pardon arise? Say that God contemplates us and our all, all our good works in Christ. God contemplates us, our persons, in all our good works in Christ. Therefore, as we ourselves, we have been engrafted in Christ, brought into union with Christ, are righteous in God's sight because our iniquities are covered by Christ's sinlessness. So our works are righteous and are thus regarded righteous because whatever fault remains in them is buried in Christ's purity and not charged to our account. Accordingly, we can deservedly say that by faith alone, sola fide, not only we ourselves, but our works are justified as well, end quote. That, that should make every believer want to just go outside and just jump for joy. Because that is the only reason our works are ever accepted, through the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ, which we receive through union with Christ. So that all of my imperfect work, even in this podcast interview, my imperfect work today, I don't have to skate on thin ice. I don't have to begin to worry. Well, I wonder, I wonder if God's going to be pleased with that interview today. I wonder, I wonder if I had a bad motive or if I did something I shouldn't have. I don't have to skate on thin ice and, and be afraid that I, I'm going to fall through because whatever, whatever fault, whatever imperfection is left in my good works in this life, they are buried in Christ's purity and never charged to my account. And that is the good news of the gospel. And that is what the Reformation recovered. And that was the joyful good news that Rome had squashed with their covenantal gnomism. And that is the good news that is lost to struggling, poor, weak-souled believers who know they're sinning and who know they're not pulling it off. And nonetheless, there is a Savior who is our mediator and who intercedes for us and covers our impurity with his purity forever and ever. And that's why I get so passionate about this whole issue, because I was never taught this uh, when I was at the Master Seminary. I was 
has never taught, but Rob Rosenblatt, he's got an excellent article in Christ the Lord, a great chapter, um, entitled, Christ Died for the Sins of Christians Too. Nobody ever told me that um, for 30 years of my Christian life. But, uh, but when I finally awakened to that, it was just, it was like just being born again again, as Francis Schaeffer says. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that's why these, these issues are so important, because uh, really when it comes down to it, uh, not only tragically Rome, but certain evangelical Bible teachers, they just don't seem to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. Um, the Bible very clearly teaches that through, by grace through faith alone, the believer has already received the judge's in-time verdict in the present. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We didn't get that because we met certain conditions. We didn't get that because we had a cooperative effort with God. We got that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And to teach anything other than that is to really miss salvation. So when your question was, you know, why is this important? Uh, to have a clear understanding of justification and sanctification, that, I mean, that's, that's my answer. Well, we're actually having Rod on in a couple of weeks because, of course, I appreciate him also. And yeah. so to preface this question, the thing that I get that women write to me about the most is assurance. Mm -hmm. And how does lordship salvation affect the believer and is struggles with assurance one of those ways mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that's a great question um really because um assurance of faith is at the root of the lordship debate uh, assurance of faith you know, again, I go back to my friend who I'm, uh, I'm just dear friends with, and he's awakened gloriously uh, to the gospel, to the Reformed confessions, and he's just going so much better now. Obviously, he's not perfect, and he still sins, but he, he knows where the answer is now. When he first came to me, he had absolutely no assurance of faith. And I get that. Um, let me give you a, a personal uh, testimony. Um, when I was at the Master's Seminary and when I was at uh, Grace Community Church as one of the uh, uh, under-shepherds in the college uh, department, you know, I, I, I had come out of the Southern Baptist Church and basically had been taught absolutely nothing uh, uh, in the Southern Baptist Church, just it was a bastion of liberalism, and uh, one of my pastors, he didn't believe in the miracles of Christ. He was a, a Bulmanian scholar. He didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit was just some mystical force, and I mean, I knew nothing. Um, so when I got to the Master Seminary, I'm thinking, you know, this is the pinnacle of biblical Christianity. Um, 
And I got there and I started learning dispensationalism and premillennial pre-tribulationism and uh, lordship salvation and biblicism and all these isms. And there was something that just wasn't setting with me because the reality of my life didn't match what I was being taught. Now, that doesn't make theology wrong, but it just began putting questions, doubts in my mind. For example, um, the book of First John was a favorite of uh, the seminary and the church because First John was presented to us as a series of tests so you can check your obedience and so that you can examine your life and look at those tests. And if you pass the test, then you can have assurance of faith. So, so all I understood about the book of First John was that the First John was a series of tests for the real serious Christians who were really surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Again, that Wesleyan kind of two-stage salvation background. Um, and if you're really surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, you're going to pass these tests, and you're—I mean, you're—you're you're, you're doing well, and you can have assurance. But boy, if you don't pass these tests, you really need to look at see if you've submitted and surrendered all to the Lordship of Christ. Well, obviously, I was newly married, and so when you're newly married, even when you've been married 23 years, like I've been married 23 years, you're still a sinner, but <laughs> it gets a little bit better. Um, when you're first trying to figure it out, you know, you have an argument with your wife. And so the way I would deal with the argument was I would do acts of penance. I was a confessional evangelical, but I was a functional Roman Catholic. And I was just being a good lordship salvation believer. I would have an argument with my wife. I would go to the book of 1 John. I would give myself the test. I would fail the test miserably. Nobody ever showed me that the gospel was in 1 John. I had no idea of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and, and that I have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has propitiated my sin before the Father. Nobody ever showed that to me. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love, not the, or verse 19, this, uh, we love because he first loved us. This is love. He sent his son to be the propitiation. None of that would, if you told me back then, read the book of 1 John, my eyes would have immediately had all these test imperatives pop out, and the gospel would have just been totally eclipsed. It would have been a complete solar eclipse. <laughs> um, um, so I would take the test. I failed the test. I was taught that believers bear fruit. I'm not bearing this fruit. Conclusion, I'm not a believer. Or I'm a really bad believer, and I need to just submit and get under the Lordship of Christ and crank out my obedience and work really hard uh, to show that, boy, I, I really sold out and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. That was my Christian life. Um, and I lived like that for 30 years. 
and I was miserable. I remember reading a book by Matthew, of the Puritan Matthew Mead. John MacArthur wrote the foreword to his book. It was entitled, The Almost Christian Discovered. And I'll never forget it. Um, I read the book. And after reading the book, I, I went to Catherine, my wife, and I looked at her and I said, I am utterly convinced I am the almost Christian discovered, and there's no hope for me. I'm going to go to hell. And that is what Lordship Salvation, that was the fruit of Lordship Salvation in my life. I had no assurance. I had no idea, and I'm so glad you're going to have Rod Rosenblatt on. I hope I get to meet him one day. Um, I had no idea that Christ died for the sins of Christians too. And 1 John 2, 1 through 2, or 1 John 4, 10, or 1 John 4, 16 through 19, all those passages of the gospel in 1 John, it's just glaring. Look at the gospel. <laughs> Listen to the gospel. Um, and so the problem with Lordship Salvation, and I mentioned this earlier, is that it leads believers to only find assurance in the reflex, what's called the reflex act of faith. The reflex act of faith is that's the little syllogism that I just used. Believers bear fruit. I bear fruit. What is the conclusion? I'm a believer. Uh, believers bear fruit. I don't see any fruit. What's my conclusion? I'm not a believer. I don't have assurance. The problem, the problem with the reflex act of faith of getting assurance only and exclusively from the reflex act of faith, there's a couple problems with it. Um, number one, what about the bad days that you have? Uh, Jerry Bridges in his wonderful book, The Gospel Mystery, I mean, excuse me, uh, The Gospel for Real Life. And that's another book your listeners should get and read and read and read. I've read it at least 20, 30 times. It's about to fall apart. I've read it so much. But he talks about the good day, bad day scenario. So the good day is you wake up and you have a perfect quiet time, which you think is a perfect quiet time. Nobody has a perfect quiet time, obviously. You don't argue with your husband. Your children are just perfect. They give perfect civil righteous obedience. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Perfect manners. Perfect grades in school. Everything's going good. Then you wake up the next day. You don't have time for a quiet time. You spill coffee on your lap as you're running out the door. You smell like coffee all the way to your job. Your leg is burning because it was hot. Your kid gets into a tussle at school. The school calls you. Come pick up your son or daughter. They're, they're, they're being you know, kicked out of class for the day or whatever it is. Or they cheated on a test or they really blew it big time. You come home and your husband's cranky and he had a bad day at work. You've just generally had a really bad day. And we've all had them. Well, how's your assurance on the bad day? If you want to find assurance from the reflex act of faith exclusively, you're in big trouble. But again, the Reformed Confessions of the Christian Faith, as I've already read from the Heidelberg Catechism, they don't exclude the reflex act of faith. We said, why do we do good works? So that you can have assurance of your faith. The Westminster uh, Standards, they teach this. We, we confess this. We believe this. 
But Calvin in his institutes, again, he's very helpful here. He makes the distinction between the direct act of faith and the reflex act of faith. And by the way, the marrow, the, uh, the marrow man, Thomas Boston and uh, Ralph Erskine and Ebenezer Erskine and uh, all those marrow men, they made this distinction as well in the 18th century in the marrow controversy between the reflex act of faith and direct act of faith. But Calvin says this, he says, look, when you want full assurance of faith, it's like this. A person who goes out into a sunny sky and only gazes at the sun's rays would be foolish not to let those sun's rays lead him back to the ultimate source of those rays. So they would be foolish to fixate on the rays rather than letting their eyes be directed back to the source of those rays, namely the sun itself. He said, in the same way, believers would be foolish to find exclusive assurance from their obedience alone because it is at best an imperfect and impartial work tainted with sin. Therefore, let that obedience, the fruit, the evidence that sometimes you don't even see or are aware of, and others have to point it out, let that obedience support your assurance, but it cannot serve as the sole ground of your assurance, so let your good works, like the rays of the sun, lead you back to the source. Lead you back to the work of the sun himself. And find the, the full assurance of your faith grounded in the gospel itself, which would be um, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That has to be the ultimate place where we camp out our faith because it is the only grounds that can secure and support our assurance when we have those bad days. And to be quite honest, we have a bad day every day. We just think that we might be pulling it off. And so that's the problem with lordship salvation it either results in hypocrisy or it results in despair so when i went back and i looked at my experience at grace community church and i looked at my experience at the master seminary i i was like well i definitely can't be a hypocrite here because i know i'm really blowing it <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sinning pretty bad. Um, so what? I, I just became the despairing believer, and I gave up, and, and I quit. So um, I walked away from the church for three years. Uh, as soon as I graduated in 1997, I just had enough because I didn't know the gospel. I didn't have assurance of faith. I didn't know anything about the reflex act of faith and direct act of faith. I didn't understand the centrality of the gospel in Christ, the advocacy on our behalf for sin, Christians who sin. I didn't know any of that. And I wasn't taught it. And so I thought my conclusion was, if Lordship Salvation is the pinnacle of the biblical gospel and biblical Christianity, this is the worst news I have ever heard. There's no hope for me, so I might as well just quit. And so I became the despairing believer, and I just gave up. And, and sadly, I think that's where many people are today. 
and it doesn't have to be like that. Um, John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. The gospel is not a license to sin. He says, but if anyone does sin, we know the reality. Believers are going to sin. He's already told you in chapter 1, believers sin. Believers confess sin. They don't pretend like they're sinless. He says, but if, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the righteous one, not me. And he pleads as my defense attorney on my behalf before the Father, forgive him. Why? Because he is a propitiation for my sin, and not only for our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, he, there's no other propitiator in the whole world other than Christ. And so Christ has fully exhausted every ounce of the judgment and condemnation and wrath of God against me forever and ever because he ever lives to intercede for me as my advocate. Um, when you begin to see that, obedience will begin to uh, appear in your life for the first time, real obedience. In Reformed theology, where does our obedience fit into the Christian life? This is the thing that uh, uh -huh. I've had people say, well, what about responsibility? You know you're responsible, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, um, it's exactly like what um, I, I've just shared previously um, in our podcast. Um, uh, obedience fits in our life, as the Heidelberg Catechism clearly says, and is an expression of gratitude. Of thankfulness. Um, I, and I see this on social media, and I know sometimes, you know, we were on social media together and so post that both of us post, we get <laughs> these uh, lordship people coming out from the dark corners and shadows, and you can see them coming. Um, it, we, we as fallen human beings are addicted to a legal method of salvation. Now, part of that is because this is how we're wired. God put us, put man in the Garden of Eden, the Garden Temple, and he put him under a covenant of works, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and he basically said to man, do this and live, or if you don't, do this and die. And But it was right for God to put man under this legal covenant because there was no sin. And so man was made, the Bible says, very good. He was made in God's image. God gave man every faculty he needed to give perfect obedience to God's law. And Adam, he could, of his own free will, chosen to obey, and he could have kept the law of God perfect, uh, personally, perfectly, and perpetually. But for some mysterious reason that the scriptures do not give us, he didn't do that. 
And not only did he not do that, but because he was our federal head and he was acting on behalf of all his posterity, we, as Romans 5 says, we have fallen in him. We have committed this with him. And so here's the interesting thing about this. He didn't know what grace was. It was, it was not even just counterintuitive to him. It wasn't in him. He didn't know that this was how he was going to relate to his creator who had become his judge, but would later become his redeemer. And so here's what happens in the Garden of Eden. This is an amazing thing. He, he fails the test. God's son, the son of God, fails the test. And so he knew exactly the terms of the covenant. And so did his wife Eve. And so what do they do? They go hide. They hide in fear. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, they're hiding in fear. They say they're hiding in fear. They put fig leaves over them to cover up their act of guilt, which is not a subjective guilt, but it is an objective guilt to the covenant of works. They're guilty. They've broken the law of God, and they know the sanction. They know the penalty. God is going to kill them. You're going to die in the day that you break this. You shall surely die. And so Adam and Eve are hiding in fear, trying through their self-righteous efforts of good works to keep now the covenant of works. But it's too late because they have broken the covenant. And God comes to Adam and he says this in Genesis chapter 3. He calls out to the man, and he says, Adam, where are you? It's not a question of location. Obviously, God knows exactly where they are. That is a covenantal question of judgment by the judge, the creator himself. Adam, where are you now in relationship to me that you, since you have broken my covenant? Where do you stand before me, Adam? This was a question of judgment. And Adam says, in the Hebrew, it's very interesting, the word is kol, it is voice, the word. Adam heard the voice, the word of God. And Adam says, I heard your word, your voice, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And Adam's cry of fear becomes the cry of man in his fallen state before a holy God when the holy God, his judge, comes to that man and looks at him and says, where are you now in relationship to me since you have broken my covenant? Where do you stand with me? What is the penalty? And all Adam knew in his whole existence up to this point, was, I'm guilty and you're going to kill me. And the day that you eat this, you shall surely die. They were scared, literally spitless, because God the judge was coming to execute them. That was their expectation. 
and they were desperately trying now to give works and obey to please God to be reconciled back in this relationship and God looks at their fig leaves of self-righteous works and says no 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 you cannot keep the work any you can't keep this covenant by your works anymore because you have broken it and you're guilty and all you have now to receive is its sanction as penalty which is death and then the most glorious <laughs> surprising amazing words ever spoken to man is spoken by the judge who becomes the redeemer he says in galatians 3 15 i'll just paraphrase it i'm going to send the offspring of eve i'm going to send the serpent crusher and he's going to crush right he's going to crush the head of the serpent and that's the Proto-Evangelion. That is the first gospel. That is the covenant of grace. God makes another covenant, as the Westminster Confession says. God was pleased to make another covenant. And, this, and, and man had no idea that God was going to do this. And because we have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who works in perfect concert, in loving concert towards sinners, he, he comes down and condescends, and he makes a gracious covenant. Not like the covenant of works, but a new covenant. And this new covenant, this covenant of grace, is not do this and live or else die if you don't. But this covenant of grace is where the mediator God himself assumes all the responsibility in the covenant keeps all of its conditions, both in his active obedience to all the precepts, both to his passive obedience in terms of its penalties and the curse. And Paul says in Galatians 3 that Christ became a curse for us. And that curse is what was given in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve and to all of us in um Christ bore that on our behalf. He is the serpent crusher. He has crushed the head of Satan, not only through his obedience, as we see in Matthew 4 in the wilderness, through his temptation narrative, but he is also as the faithful son of God, under, unlike Israel, the faithless son of God, unlike Adam, the faithless son of God, Jesus, the faithful son of God, through his obedience in the wilderness, crushed the serpent's head. Through his death on the cross, Paul says he has triumphed over all his enemies, making a public spectacle, triumphing over them. It is finished. The work that the Father gave him to do and his life, death, burial, and resurrection, it is finished. It is a perfect work. And in the covenant of grace, what was works for Jesus is a gift of inheritance for us, and we receive it through the spirit-wrought gift of faith alone, on the basis of God's grace alone, in Christ alone, and that all of that is to the glory of God alone, and that is the gospel. That is the good news. Wow. Amen. Well, just re real quick, I wanted, we got a voicemail, and I, I, if you would be willing to just respond to it just sure. briefly, I think it fits right into this. Uh -huh. um, so I'm gonna, hopefully the sound will be okay as I play it. Okay. 
Hi, ladies. This is Amber Smitham, and I have a question about the law and gospel distinction and how it relates to warning passages. How are we to rightly understand certain passages in light of the gospel? Um, a few passages that stand out to me are Matthew 6.15, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. I thought all of our sins, past, present, and future, were already forgiven, so I don't understand how to really understand this passage. Um, another one that often plagued me is Matthew 7.2. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. The measure you use, it will be used against you. And the one that keeps me up at night is Matthew 10.33. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Um, also, if you guys have any additional resources that shed more light on the warning passages, um, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, ladies, so much. Bye. Um, yeah, so again, um, um, boy, um, that, that brings up a whole another discussion. Uh, let me just say it like this. Um, uh, again, th this is why the Reformed confessions of the Christian faith are so important, because they give us the categories, the, the necessary and helpful categories to rightly think about these things and think about warning passages. Um, you know, the book of Hebrews is filled with warning passages. Um, and so what do you do with these warning passages? Well, um, one of the answers that the, the Reformed Confessions uh, very clearly give to us, and I think it's so helpful, is that the Reformed have always understood that there are different ways of relating to the one covenant of grace. Um, let me give you some examples. Um, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 clearly shows us that there are those who have only an external outward relation to the covenant of grace. They haven't received the substance of the covenant of grace, which would be justification and sanctification. They haven't received Christ, a whole Christ. But yet they're in the covenant community. They're in the church. And... Um, they're making a profession. Um, but Paul clearly distinguishes in Romans 9 between those who have this external outward relationship to the covenant of grace and those who have an internal or inward spiritual relation to the covenant of grace. So, for example, um, he uses the um, example of Jacob and Esau. Now, if you go back to the Genesis narrative, and if you look at the, the, the narrative of Jacob and Esau, and if you just read the narrative for what the, uh, Moses is giving to us there, it's very clear that both of them are really bad sinners. <laughs> They're both very bad scoundrels. Neither one of them um, uh, have merited anything. But both of them are in the covenant community of believers, or the people of God. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 9. And he says that Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So it was possible to participate in the administration of the covenant of grace, but not actually benefit from its substance 
which would be Christ and his saving benefits of justification and sanctification. And Paul tells you there that the difference is, is God's election. Um, according to Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, it's possible to participate in the administration of the new covenant and yet trample underfoot its essence to one's own destruction. And so there are warning passages. The Apostle Paul, he's comparing and contrasting uh, the child of promise and the child who is uh, not a child of promise, but yet they were both in uh, externally or they were in internally the covenant of grace. So the way that we have to look at these morning passages is basically what I'm saying is, is the church is a... It's a mixed body. Um, the church consists of uh, believers and their children who have been baptized and they are confessing the faith. Um, yet we know that the visible institutional church um, is uh, filled with uh, a mixture of believer and unbeliever. It's a mixed assembly. And so that's why there are warning passages. So um, you know, um, there are what we call hypocrites uh, in the church. And so it is quite shocking when a false brother or sister falls away. And so what the Reformed say about that is that only the elect have the substance of the covenant of grace. These people who have fallen away and committed apostasy, they only participated in this outward administration in the visible assembly, but they have never, um, they've never really participated inwardly in the, the substance of the covenant. Um, and so uh, the church is a mixed assembly, and that's why we would have, we should expect to find uh, warning passages. And so when a believer hears the warning passages, what do they do with it? They don't lose their assurance. And this, this uh, uh, caller that called in, she, she said, you know, the, the Matthew 10 passage, I think it was verse 33, it keeps me up and it, and it makes me fearful. Let me give you assurance, whoever you are who said that. Um, you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be afraid because that is the law speaking. And when believers hear these warning passages, what do they do? I've already shared this from the confessions. Why do we have God's law preached so strictly to us in this life, the Heidelberg Catechism? So that we not only see our sin more and more, our sinful nature more and more, but as we see that sinful nature more and more, what do we do? Turn to Christ. And flee to him. We flee to Christ alone, by faith alone, and trust, receive and rest in Christ alone, and look to him, and rest in him, and confess him, and say to him, you're my only righteousness. I have no other hope. I have no other plea. I have no other answer. I hear your law, and it's driving me. I see I'm a sinner, and I confess Jesus alone as my advocate and mediator. 
and you cling to Christ. That's what a believer does when they hear these warning passages. They're not meant to make you fearful and to put you under a covenant of works. But when a hypocrite hears that, they look at that and they run to their life and they try to offer God penance, works, something they can do to get back into the good favor of God. And God says, no, away with that. I don't recognize any of my works in that. I see your works. I don't see my works. And so that's really how we have to handle all these warning passages in the new covenant. Thanks. I think that was that was very, very helpful. Well, I, yeah. I just appreciate so much you coming on and explaining all of this. I think this is going to be very helpful. I am in all of the books that you recommended throughout. I wrote down and I will include all of those in the episode notes. Oh, great. Some great recommendations. The one that you recommended, the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. We had Gary Edwards on to talk about sanctification, and that's one that he also recommended. Yeah. Oh, man. I love Gary Edwards. He's a, he's a, he's a wonderful friend. Yeah. He, that, um, a lot of people just really appreciated that episode also. So I'll link that. I'm going to link that in the notes to our episode with Gary because I think that would also be helpful within this discussion for anyone yeah. who has didn't hear that one. So, well, thank you, John, so much for coming on and for all this great information. I think it's going to be really helpful for our listeners um, because this this topic comes up in our Theology Gals Facebook group, and sometimes I get questions Mm -hmm. about it. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you, Colleen, and um, thank you, Marissa, and I yeah, I just pray that uh, this these things will be helpful and that uh, really people uh, could leave this podcast rejoicing in the salvation that they have through Christ. Um, let me just leave you um, with this promise, this direct act of faith, this promise of the gospel to all your listeners, to, to anybody who's listening. And if you're fearful, if you don't have assurance, Stop looking inward because there's nothing there but fallenness Um, and look outward to a perfect work and hear the father say to you, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. Thank you so much for letting me be with you. Amen. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to Conversations from the Port. Hello and welcome to Living in the Vine. This is the Council of Google Plus. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. 12 podcasts, one network. Check them out at BibleThumpingWingnut.com.